0: Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, and I am recording at Town Hall, Seattle. But I am joined with a great guest this morning, Hope Jaron. She's the author of a new book, Lab Girl. She has received three Fulbright Awards in geobiology and is one of four scientists and the only woman to have ever been awarded both of the Young Investigator Medals given in Earth Sciences. She was named one of the Brilliant Ten by Popular Science in 2005, and she has taught and pursued independent research at universities all over the United States, most recently as a tenured professor at the University of Hawaii. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. It's great to have you on the show. One of the reasons I wanted to have you is because no matter where we go in the world, or live in the world, we are surrounded by plants and trees. It's one of the constant things. Granted, when I lived in Italy, a lot of the towns are very paved over, so there's very little there. But I've been a person where plants and trees often stand out to me, but I know that a lot of listeners, they are just sort of background. They're always there. They don't notice them. And so I was hoping that we could talk so that people, when they look at the world around them, see it just slightly differently after listening to today's episode. I was interested in how you started the book, where you referred to yourself and to the reader as one scientist talking to another. Do you consider all people scientists in their own way?
1: Well, there were a lot of very active choices into how I wrote this. And I wrote it very, very carefully. I thought for a long time about why does the world need another book? Because me and most of the people I know are up to their eyebrows in books, stacks of them on your bedside table. I don't know if you do. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And you go into a bookstore and and, you know, I would go into a bookstore and look around, you know, what could I possibly contribute that would be different than this stuff. And so one thing I knew very early on was that I had to think very hard about how this would offer something different to the person that took time out of their lives to read it. And I also thought a lot about science writing. I don't mean to sound negative but there's i don't know i i often leave science writing feeling a little bit unfulfilled maybe some of that is because i've taken so many classes and i've been lectured at in science enough for two lifetimes right Mm -hmm. so i'm very sensitive to that tone that's like I'm telling you this and it's your responsibility to take it in and do something with it and absorb it and and this kind of just very vaguely pedantic feel to it and I just feel very firmly that we don't need another science book like that. So I wanted to come out with a clear voice that is somebody talking to you, not lecturing at you, but somebody talking to you. And I do think that's part of what sets this book apart, is that it's written with a real respect for the reader. And I care about whether every sentence gets through. And I thought I needed to make it explicit from the start that I was talking to the reader as an equal, that I saw them as somebody that they were gonna get the whole story. As gritty as some of it was, and as sophisticated as some of it was, they were gonna get the whole thing. The flip side of that is that I firmly believe I'm not telling anything that any reader couldn't absorb. You're going to get the same story that another scientist gets when we close the doors and have a private conversation about what we really, really do and how we feel about it. That's the tone that
0: I just felt like I needed to glue together in the very first paragraphs so you've spent most of your career and by the way if you can hear people walking around above us it's because we're sitting in a basement at town hall where i now work in seattle you have spent your career studying soils plants and trees why did you choose that as your field of study it's interesting
1: 20 30 years ago environmental science didn't really exist yet It kind of had its glory days in the 90s when biogeochemical cycling, you know, the carbon cycle and things like that were kind of defined by scientists. And so if you wanted to study the interface between what was alive and what wasn't alive, and today, it's it's very old hat. We talk about petroleum, putting it in our cars, putting it in the atmosphere, what that's doing to the ocean, et cetera. And so thinking about a cycle from the non-living to the living has now become part of our, our everyday discourse. Back then, it was still very much, you know, you were a geologist and you looked for petroleum or you did mining or you were a biologist, and you uh, worked on agriculture, or you studied disease and how to cure it, etc. And the interface between the two happened in the soil department. Those were the folks that were worried about how rocks weather and how different fertility chemicals get into the soil. And they were also interested in how plants grew and how they moved water around and, and how rain cycled through the thing. And so it became a very natural place to sort of look at that basic integration between what's alive and what's not alive. And that's always been my fascination. How do we move from a pool of matter that's so clearly not alive, you know, you can point at rocks and the rain and all these things that aren't alive. And then you can point at things that obviously are alive. And and that's plants at the very, very first step. And I've always been interested in how one turns into the other.
0: I love how one of the things that you said in the book was that trees are a good example of things that humans cannot make. Can you elaborate on that at all? Well, trees
1: are old. I mean, different species have evolved, but the idea of making wood to get up off the ground and reach toward the light with a stable prop, that's an old, old idea, 400 million years old. And it's a strategy that was adopted, you know, widely across different families. So, so it's not an inherited genetic thing down through one family. It's, it's a shtick that a lot of different characters on the stage have, have gone towards. And so there's something about the tree strategy, you know, being this big, stiff yet flexible thing, that reaches up toward the light is a very very old idea that's been around for 400 million years old and it predates everything that even remotely smacks of what might be a human someday. And so I see it as as this precondition of the planet earth that has nothing to do with us. I think that's what I was trying to trying to say. And 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 I think we are so attuned to see the parts that we do make that we ignore. I mean, we we don't even see a lot of the green in the background. Uh, The very first part of the book is basically trying to get people to see it, which is what I do with students as well. I start pointing it out is that you have to have practice looking at it before you really start to see it.
0: How do you get them to start looking at it? What are you pointing out, for example?
1: I have a great photograph of Central Park, and it's from the Upper West Side. And it's taken from high up on the building. And it looks down more or less Broadway, And you can see Central Park and you can see the Upper West Side, where Lincoln Center is, etc. And you can see, it's a bird's eye view, so you can see where the trees stop. And it's not like Central Park is heavily forested or something like that. But there's such an amazing contrast between this field of green, which isn't even really a natural space. It's just got some green. And then it just becomes a concrete expanse. And I think walking on the street you know, as a little animal scurrying around New York City. We don't see the contrast, but a world without green is is a totally different thing. And and that's kind of the first picture that I show when I teach these classes. And that's why the book starts out with this contrast between a skyscraper and a tree.
0: One of the things you also point out early in the book, and maybe this is something you you do with your students as well, is that so many of us have a tree that we remember from our childhood maybe you could tell us about your tree and then say what it is about those trees. Does that change our relationship to trees in general? Or what is about those trees that's important?
1: I think, and you're right, is that a lot of the devices in the book are things that from 20 years of teaching students, you, you learn what works and what doesn't, what draws them in you can see it in their eyes you know and so I have a number of tricks that I've experimented with a lot of different ways of trying to get this to stick in people's memories to get that light bulb to turn on and so it almost feels like cheating you know I can throw some Mm -hmm. of those out and and I see people's eyes light up it's it's almost that easy but the tree from the childhood is an interesting thing children of course you're born and you do see the green because you go through a stage where your brain is just soaking up everything, right? And people often, if there's a tree in their area, it's this very large, very stable thing that they see every day. And I think a lot of folks have an experience where they're drawn to a certain tree. Um, The other interesting thing about that is that they observe it. As a kid, you don't worry about having to be somewhere in thirty minutes or whatever. And so you take the time to immerse yourself in an observation that you're making. I'm going to look at this until I'm done looking at it. and it's a gut feeling that you follow, and you know, you smell it and touch it and think about it and imagine it, et cetera. And that's also what being a scientist is, is that observing on many levels of consciousness, and so I try to trigger a time when people remember doing it. And I find that they often have that experience around, around a tree that they knew. It's very, very common. It's interesting.
0: It's probably one of the only experiences, too, where a lot of people would have spent time in a tree.
1: Yeah, people have different experiences. I mean, some people climb their trees. Some people just just remember Seeing it, you know, there was this tree that I walked by every day and it it was always there. And I grew up and everything changed. But, you know, that tree didn't. I think people are drawn to it. You know, that's exactly what you need when you're a kid, too. And people have so much joy. It's a symbol of comfort and there's nothing ever negative about it. Like the tree never did you wrong or anything like that. And so I I think it's also a device where I can get somebody to a very comfortable place where they feel like they have some private expertise and familiarity with something that we're
0: talking about. Then as an adult, we probably still often, many of us have a big tree that's still in our lives, wherever we're living. It might be outside of our apartment window. It might be just on the street we walk to work on every day we start to not notice it anymore. Do you know why? Do you have a theory why?
1: Uh, you know, life takes over.
0: We learn that
1: a trees are a resource. I mean, we can look around this room right now and look at how many of these objects are made of wood. Um, you know, we've got plastic and we've got metal and we build all this stuff, but wood is still a building material of choice a whole lot of the things in our lives are made of wood and you know you look at just number one the sheer number of things and then think about how every piece of this wood used to be a living organism that you know tried its best to stay alive and and maybe pulled it off for you know 40 70 years or, or whatever it is everywhere why do we stop seeing it I mean I think there's there's this interesting challenge associated with being human around how do you coexist with a resource and exploit it at the same time. That's true for meat, and it's true for wood, and it's true for crops and things like that, all to different varying degrees. I mean, people have their own ethical thresholds for each one of those challenges. But the challenge of coexisting with a resource and exploiting it at the same time, one method for Putting that ambivalence to rest is to de-animate the resource. So we minimize the extent to which it is alive in order to more clearly see it as an exploitable resource. And of course there's much more tragic examples of that than, you know, wood or whatever. That's what I think is going on at a kind of a deep level, and I also find that very interesting.
0: But it's not the truth for you. You probably notice after working in your field for so many years, can you even describe what you see in a tree that we do not see as a person who has not spent so much time studying it?
1: I don't, and I like to be clear about this. I don't think I have an emotional attachment that you don't. I absolutely don't think that. I don't think I love them better or appreciate them better or know them more or whatever. I think things might occur to me that just haven't occurred to you. Like I'm very interested in photographs. Uh, There are some great photographs of New York City, for example, where you stand in one place and take a photograph every 50 years and you see one tree and it gets a little bit bigger and the city just grows up around it. And so the, if you think about, trees don't have eyes or whatever, but if you think about what the city looks like to that tree, you know, standing in one place, watching people and concrete and everything grow up around you like this smothering kind of fungus, it's, it's kind of an interesting mind journey to go on. And, and I think, you know, most folks wouldn't look at that series of photographs and, and think those particular thoughts. And then you can go into something deeper, which is we, what does it mean to stay You and I, the weather turns yucky and we go inside. And plants never, never do that. You know, they stand there and they stay. And their success is all about being able to stay and endure and feed back into uh, processes that either subtly or not so subtly modify what's coming at you. Just a very different way to, to make it in the world
0: reminds me of your discussion of the seed in the book, what a seed has to go through to become a tree or a flower or whatever it becomes to get that chance to be something. Can you describe sort of how you describe what a seed's life perspective is? Seeds are crazy.
1: It's like having magic powers or something. I can do this to you right now. I mean, think about think about what the world would be like if every seed, if every acorn that fell turned into a tree. I mean, we'd be up past our eye. There would never have been room for animals to evolve. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. So so this is a really fun thing to think about because it is such a great example of the otherness of trees, which I talk about a lot, is that they're not like us and we can't empathize with them because they're so stunningly different, even very basic things. The whole way they approach reproduction is just make a sickening number of offspring with just a radically small chance of ever going anywhere. You know, if a hundred year old oak tree replaces itself at the end of a hundred years, then it's done its job. But think about how many acorns it made along the way. I mean, that's a hard way to get the job done, right? Mm -hmm. So seeds are interesting in that they happen, but they have so little hope of going somewhere. Then when one does, it had to have been a seed. So there's, there's no other way to do it. And yet it almost never happens. And so I think of every tree that was once a seed as, as this impossible thing that, that somehow happened. Every tree that you see around you is impossible. It's, it's absolutely impossible. And yet there it is, it's huge. It's bigger than you are, it's stronger than you are. It is the whole impossible world standing there being. It's amazing.
0: I've always thought that it must have something to do with the the forgetfulness of squirrels, that they bury so much and then they lose track of where they put stuff. Yeah.
1: I I mean, the relationship between plants and animals is interesting. And we're always, even with squirrels, we're always tempted to believe that we matter more than we do. I read a study, and I wish I could remember where it is, is that, that, you know, squirrels, and you can look out your window and they run around burying stuff or whatever. How many... And I do remember this number. How many out of a thousand acorns that a squirrel buries, how many of those do you think it digs up later and actually eats?
0: <laughs> no idea. Very few, I would think. How would you keep track? It's like three.
1: Only three? Yeah, yeah.
0: So that means that even though they bury them, the seeds are still not coming about. So it gets better. So let's
1: think about this. Who really benefits from the seed doing from the squirrel doing this? Who really benefits? The seed. So, how the hell else is a seed going to get two or three inches underground? Which is a great thing to do if you're a seed. It can't dig itself in. So, you've basically got these legions of squirrels stuffing these things into the ground and spending all this energy running around, you know, doing it. They could be doing other things that pay off better, right? So, the squirrels are actually working for the trees right? Your chances as a seed of actually becoming a tree are astronomically better if you can somehow jam yourself into the ground, right? So you've really got these legions of squirrels running around working for the trees, and they don't get much benefit off of it at all. And knowing the numbers is the key to getting that right. Because if you don't know the numbers, that three out of a thousand, you're tempted to think that oh, yeah, the tree makes food for the squirrel and the squirrel comes and gets it. And, and it's all about the trees are there, like checking their watches, They're like time to feed the squirrels, you know, <laughs> let's get going. But it's really it's not, you know, animals are just a random parasite that feeds off of the garbage made by plants. It's just a recent kind of thing. I mean, plants did very, very well. Trees did very, very well on this planet for millions of years before there was anything like animals. And yet we have this need, this emotional need to believe that they care about us or, or they're doing something for us or, or that it's okay to whack them down and turn them into tables and stuff because, you know, they it's just what they're for. It's really, it's, it's I don't know, I, I think it's funny.
0: It's their job to give
1: back, so to speak. They're here for us, that sort of mentality. Right, and that's, that's again how you justify
0: exploitation. So what would the internal life of the tree be if it's not like our external view? They're here for us. What's the internal view of a tree as far as what its goals are?
1: <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty clear. I mean, a tree needs light, and it needs carbon dioxide, and it needs water, and it spends all, all of its time trying to get those three things. And it has a million different ways of jockeying around and improvising and uh, brutally stabbing towards those resources. And, you know, if something walks by and chews a couple leaves off, (laughs) that doesn't even hit the radar most of the time. You know, and I see that's what the tree thinks about or that's what the tree worries about. And I always get dinged for anthropomorphizing or something like that. But it's, I haven't anthropomorphized it. I've just dared to use a word that anybody would understand instead of choosing the right scientific word that takes me away from being able to write that sentence. um, You're a scientist, I'm a scientist. And that's not
0: a price I'm willing to pay with this book. You tell a story about the day after many years of working as a scientist, I would say, of the day that you felt like you actually were a scientist. Do you wanna tell that story?
1: Yeah, well, you know, in school, you're taught to do things that somebody's already done. So they know what the right answer is. So, you know, you do this experiment where you mix base and acid and you do a report on what you got. And somebody knows what the answer is and you're evaluated against whether you did it right. But what science is, is you're doing something where nobody knows the right answer. And in fact, nobody even knows if what you're doing is worth doing. Nobody knows if the right answer is even worth having. And there's no way to guess beyond just doing it, has always been my idea. So I think when you do that and you learn something, then all of a sudden you're the only person in the world who knows it. And that's a really powerful moment, I think. It doesn't mean that what you just figured out is important or even right necessarily, but the creation of new information based on experience I think is at the very heart of what scientists do
0: when they practice science. So it was that first moment when you realized I'm alone in a room. I just figured something out for as long as I stay in this room and don't tell anybody. I'm the only person who knows this.
1: Yeah. Right. And it, it was interesting because I was doing this experiment and I, I needed to get on this machine and I was doing it in the middle of the night because I'm kind of like that. And so, and I was really, really excited about it. And I, it was my idea to make the measurement in the first place and And then I learned the answer and it was the middle of the night and I had no one to call. I had to wait until the sun came up to like bother somebody and say, oh, I figured this thing out. At which point they'd say, yeah, that's, that's, I would have guessed that or, you know, I mean, it wasn't like discovered the cure for some disease. It was was a very, very small step in is like that. But I had to stand around and wait for the sun to come up before I could tell anybody. And I had a long time to think about how, gosh, I'm the only person who knows this and until i tell somebody this is really really mine it's this existential thing that's really mine and and right now for right now my my mind what i know is actually unique in a big universe full of people and that's i don't know if you get that in any other in any other walk of life
0: what did you find
1: out well <laughs> It's anticlimactic or whatever. I think it's lovely, personally. Uh, yeah, right. So, so the other thing that people don't generally know is that the line between what's a rock and what's alive is, is very interesting in that most living organisms precipitate minerals, precipitate rocks as part of their biologic processes. So your teeth, for example, are, are enamel, uh, which is actually the mineral... Oh, there's actually the mineral apatite in there, a very hard mineral. And your bones are another example. It's a slightly different mineral. Seashells are a different example. A peach pit is a mineral called aragonite. Uh, a lot of plants have very small little mineral buds in them called phytoliths. That's what grinds down horses' teeth as they eat, etc. And of course, a lot of almost every family in the tree of life makes a mineral as part of their functioning every little shell in the ocean etc a lot of that is what survives as a fossil so if you dig up fossils later you find you know you find bones and you find shells and we also find little peach pits and cherry has a very hard mineral pit and bamboo a lot of what's inside bamboo is actually a very glassy substance that's what makes it so hard And so we have a record of these fossils, and they're often minerals. And we wanted to look at whether we could use these fossil minerals to reconstruct what plant life was like. Could you take the mineral part which preserved and analyze it chemically, and it would tell you something about how the plant lived, et cetera. So that was the idea. But the very, very first step was what mineral is this? You know, is it the kind that's like your teeth or is it the kind that's like your bones or is it a glassy kind or whatever? I was working with a certain species and we just didn't know. And so I did a pretty simple test, an x-ray analysis to figure out what it was. And then I had the answer to that question and it was still night. And there I sat there with that answer. I just sat there with my answer waiting for the sun to come up. What mineral was it? Opal. It was opal opal is uh, it's a kind of quartz and it's got a little bit of water in it so if you have some opal jewelry you see that it shines in a certain way that's because there's very tiny water molecules that are kind of trapped within the mineral of course that makes sense that a plant would make a mineral and have little water molecules trapped in it it was also the the readout from the machine was very very obvious I mean sometimes you get data that's sort of like well it could be this and it could be that or whatever but this was one of those times when it came out and like you'd have to be really (laughs) having a bad day to think that that was anything but opal and so it was just like I was meant to know this and it was meant to be my knowledge for this short period of time and so I had to I had a little bit of time to think about what that meant. And of course, I was sleep deprived and everything. So it became this big
0: <laughs> maudlin experience. An amazing, unforgettable yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, Are there assumptions people make about you when they find out you're a scientist? Well, I don't often
1: announce myself as a scientist. <laughs> I mean, my life is pretty small. I mean, you read the book and, you know, you see that there's a lot of time spent in small rooms counting things or out in the field labeling jars and putting stuff in it and the characters in the book are pretty there's not a lot of it's not a huge cast of thousands right and so there's a lot of stuff that's not in the book right if you read between the lines there's not there's like not i've never been to a club you know whatever that is or or you know there's not dinner parties and vacations and Mm -hmm. and family dinners and the kind of normal stuff that normal people do. And so it doesn't often come up that I'm in some public space introducing myself and talking about being a scientist. It just doesn't really happen. And I actually try to avoid it because I really hate what I really hate is if I say I'm a scientist and then you get that people actually pull pull back. I have a friend who has a physics degree from MIT. And she says, when I tell people I'm a physicist, they physically take a step back. They physically move back from me. And that's, uh, it just hurts just a little because you, 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 you want to be like, whoever you're talking to, you want them to like you or whatever. But I don't know. It's, you, I guess you are just a little bit of a freak, and that's painful.
0: Why a freak, though? Why do you think people think that?
1: Uh, well, I think people have mixed histories with respect to science. I think people perform poorly in science and then they're punished for it, and that stays with them. People are told they're not good at math, or they're, you know, people have big insecurities around their skills because we feel very free to assess people's scientific potential at a very young age.
0: Is it that we feel that we're, you're smarter than me, because you're a scientist?
1: I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know. I mean, my life is pretty small. So it is actually a very bizarre experience to be speaking on behalf of anybody, (laughs) you know, it's, it's not like, you know, I met with all the scientists and we decided that I should say this in that I feel like there's been so much isolation in this career. And that is actually one of the kind of sad things, is that I, I came from a very small town. And it goes back to the title of the book, is that I was a girl like all the other girls. And we braid, I was never a tomboy. We braided each other's hair, and we dumped rope for hours, and we, you know, we could cook and sew. And education was still very segregated back then. I did Home Mac, and the boys did Shop, and that was what you wanted to be. You know, there were all kinds of capable, smart women. That's what that's who our role models were. That's what we wanted to grow up and be. And, uh, and when I chose science, I've, I lost a lot of that. You know, I went down a path that I didn't have my girlfriends around me the way I always had. And I also had to minimize and downplay the fact that I was a female, you know, at every turn and maybe I didn't have to but I certainly it certainly made things easier if I did if I didn't have my femininity in people's faces all the time it made it it just made things go a lot easier and so I had to let go of that a little bit part of this book is reclaiming it that's why it's called lab girl sometimes I get reactions to the fact that that's Sometimes I actually hear that that's, that's a demeaning title or what, you know, which is, I think, gosh, you know, I'm almost 50 years old. And when am I going to be OK with the fact that I was a girl and <laughs> I don't I don't want to live my whole life and never stand up and say that I was a girl and I was a scientist when I was a girl. You know, all the skills that I use today were very much in place when I was very, very small this is part of me claiming it and returning to it. Yeah, I, I've talked a couple miles away from your original question,
0: so <laughs> I'll just let you
1: <laughs> let you say something. So do you do you
0: have you noticed in your career that things have changed as far as how people treat female scientists, or is it still is there still big division between the male scientist and the female scientist? The numbers are changing
1: in that there's more women in the room you know it was very common when I was in college to be the only girl in the class and especially as you moved into higher classes and and as you walk down this path where you're better at science and you are promoted and you get to positions of power and access you find yourself in rooms with fewer and fewer women in them I think those numbers are changing, but they're changing from the bottom up. And there's there's also kind of a, a fall-off effect where they're not changing at the top at the same rate that they're changing at the bottom. We're doing a good job at increasing participation at the front end, but we're not doing a good job at seeing that participation through where it needs to go. And so I have doubts as about about, you know, the, the rooms may have different numbers of women in them, but I don't know if they're being treated better than we ever were. Then again, you know, the difference between one and two women in the room is huge. And that's another big theme in the book, is that the difference between zero friends and one friends is, is everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Going totally opposite that, yeah. one of the things I love, and you could say maybe this is you anthropomorphizing again, but I love it you talked about plants as having enemies i love i love that notion can you explain what you mean by that
1: well plants get sick the same way we do um they get viruses and they get bacterial infections and and they certainly have herbivores i mean every you know most of the stuff out there views plants as food Mm -hmm. right and so what is an enemy i mean an enemy is anything that wants to destroy you part and parcel of its own for its own benefit so So I can cast, you know, a beetle as, as an enemy. And then plants have ways to combat their enemies. You know, they have defense compounds that they use. They have all kinds of strategies for making themselves less palatable or less vulnerable, et cetera. And so if you look at, you know, a beetle is spending all its time trying to figure out how to get a chunk of leaf into its mouth. I mean, that's pretty serious warfare. I mean, it isn't like beetles like work 9 to 5 and then they come home and eat a plant or what? That thing's got nothing else to do besides attack that plant or attack the one next to it or look for. And so I feel totally justified in saying this is a war. You know, this is these organisms are completely consumed with staying alive sometimes at the expense of each other. And so I don't feel any compulsion about using <laughs> about using the terminology we've developed for warfare. For that, it seems, it seems like a totally normal application of the terms.
0: Well, in that way it links, it takes humans out of their lofty position and says, look, you're doing the same thing as what this tree and this beetle are doing with each other.
1: It's also a device that allows me to invoke your empathy and your sympathy. You may not know what a defense compound is, but you know what a war is. You know what a bullet is. And I can come to you on your terms and invite you to make that step by using a word that's already plugged into your system of meaning. Now the risk is is that you'll interpret that slightly differently than I mean. You know, I don't want you to conjure up images of blood or something like that because trees don't really bleed in the same way we do and stuff like that. But that's a risk I'm willing to take. You know, There will be time to kind of refine exactly what a wound looks like. But I think to draw you in and also to make you feel comfortable. I'm coming to you on your terms and using your words. I think that's something that most readers are willing to forgive that, imprecision. You know, most readers are, are fairly forgiving in terms of uh, when, you know, readers can sense when somebody really cares about whether they hear. That's what I found.
0: What about weeds?
1: Why do we hate weeds so much? We hate them because we can't control them. They don't just grow where we don't want them to. They grow really well where we don't want them to. They grow a lot better than whatever it is we want to grow there. So they're the ultimate symbol of the fact that we don't control the world. Also, it's like that, that weed has nothing else to do, but figure out how to screw up your yard, right? You have to go to work and come home. And on the weekends, you can garden a little, but that thing is out there 24 seven. And you've got some roses or something that grows really slow. And you know, whatever you're trying to, you're trying to change the world into something that's good for them. But it's not i i think weeds are a demonstration of our powerlessness and an example. You know, if people are unhappy with their gardens, the best thing that they can do is is figure out what grows easy and grow that. <laughs> yeah, and it's not grass, really. <laughs> yeah, you you know, I mean, you know, you can make your life easier, but you're not going to change this dynamic that's been in place for Unless you just go whole hog and pull out, you know, some hardcore poison or some, unless you really wall up the environment and change the earth or whatever and change the ground rules of who can succeed there. You're fighting a losing battle and I don't think people like to be reminded of the fact that they're not in charge. That's my psychoanalysis of people in their weed obsession. I like weeds. <laughs> I like weeds because they're unapologetic. You know, they, they don't care if you don't like them or want them there or whatever. They just are like, this is easy. <laughs> I'm going to grow. <laughs> the thing that's always funny to me is that people are creating the perfect environment for whatever this thing is that they can't stand. Right. It's like, oh, we hate this pest. And it's like, well, stop making a world where only it can live. (laughs) It's like just hating it and being upset is not going to do it. It's like, you know, you like the kudzu problem along the highways you know, the kudzu is taking over the highways and you can't see the dogwood and it's this awful thing and it's like but you slashed a highway there you disrupted the forest and created this ditch <laughs> where only weeds can grow and now you're shocked that the highways are covered in weeds you know it's kind of this funny thing but um, our relationship with nature is really fraught with
0: control issues that are making us a little bit miserable It reminded me of a quote that you wrote, and I wrote it down. You say, my job is about making sure that there is some evidence that someone cared about the great tragedy that unfolded during our age. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, our attitude toward the environment is so rhetorical. You know, we talk about this stuff, and we talk about what kind of world we want, which is fine, but I I, I often, you know, we... (laughs) You know, I remind people that talking about something and doing something about it are two different things. And as long as our activities are the same, it doesn't matter what rhetoric we spout. It doesn't matter if we condemn the activities we perform as we perform them. The trees aren't comforted by the fact that we know it's wrong when we cut them down or something like that. I mean, it's this weird kind of penance that we're paying with this environmental guilt or whatever and so until I see the activities change and not just the rhetoric explode until I see the activities change I don't think there's any reason to to think that we're not in the same environmental boat that we were 20 years ago when we were just blithely doing these things uninformed
0: the connection isn't made Uh, maybe just to end since this is a show that a lot of expats listen to you've been in what five different continents you lived abroad in four different countries from what i remember is there a country or an experience that really stands out i remember that you were in norway i know that you studied up in the arctic is there somewhere that really stands out to you as far as when you were living in another country
1: um i think if you want to see plants i think ireland is a wonderful place to grow to go (laughs) grow um in that it's a good place to go because it's really easy to see the green i mean the place is painfully green and so if you want to train yourself to see the green things around you go to Ireland and and just drive around and you'll realize that everything that's not green is just kind of, (laughs) you know, you see these white sheep, people always say, Oh, the fluffy sheep and stuff or the castles or whatever. And the whole reason you see them is because they're not green. You know, everything around you is so, so amazing. And how the weather is just perfectly right for it's like being in a terrarium. And the closer you look, the more you see, you know, you look down at the ground and just within a square foot, you can see 30 different distinct shades of green in the moss underneath there. So I always think that's a good, good place to start
0: if people want to
1: start to see the green around them.
0: And what if I can't go anywhere and I just have to walk home today? What advice would you give me?
1: Pick a walk that you do a lot. You walk back and forth and pick one thing and look at it every day. One thing, and just make a mental note of how it changes or doesn't change. You're giving yourself a gift. If you do that for a couple of weeks or a month or whatever, that will turn into your favorite thing, and it'll turn into your thing, and you'll know something about it. The beautiful thing is you tell students to do that, and all of a sudden you see a change in them. The purpose for learning science is that the more you know about the world, the more you feel like you're part of it can be a sapling it can be a vine growing on a garbage can it can be a little patch of grass coming up between the cracks but just look at it twice or three times Uh, write write it down take a take a selfie of it and just once a day it's your your little thing if you do that for a while you'll know more about it than anybody else that's my recommendation
0: (laughs) I like it I like it I have one more thing one more thing, and then and then we'll end. One of the things that you wrote at the end was that, I guess earlier in your career or life, you used to pray to be stronger, and now you pray to be grateful. What changed in you, do you think? I
1: used to think that if I just worked harder, I would deserve for things to come out right. I finally realized that being a hard worker would pay off in some ways and I would have the satisfaction of pitching in and helping but the work was worth doing for its own sake that the reward was the work itself and then I learned that you know when good things happen and my life did come together it wasn't because I deserved it it just fell from the sky and so There isn't any response to that, but to be grateful.
0: I think that's where it comes from. Well, thank you, Hope, for being with us today. It was great to talk to you. You're welcome. Is there anywhere you want people to look for you? Obviously, your book is called Lab Girl. And is there anywhere else if people want to read more of what you've written beyond the book that they should be visiting?
1: One thing I like to say is that Once you read this book, if you really want to find yourself knowing more about plants, you're ready for a textbook by a real person. And I have one for you, not by me. It's by a guy named Peter Thomas, and it's called Trees, Their Natural History. And trust me, it's really well written, and it's got some of the ideas that I cover, but it's just a little step up. And so you're on your way to being a scientist, and I would say start there.
0: That's great. All right. Well, until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.